Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. This ongoing public health crisis, we're at like year one. (laughs) Every episode when we talk about this, I think it's going to just be like a, oh my gosh, we're still in a public health crisis. I mean, the interesting thing about this topic, thinking about housing is pretty early on in the pandemic, people pointed out that, hey, if folks aren't working, they're not going to be able to pay their rent. And you have to put a moratorium right on on uh, essentially kicking them out of their homes. Mm -hmm. And so there was there was measurable policy action on this. But the problem is, is that when it becomes a year down the line, uh, I mean, you start to see that there were all sorts of cracks in this to begin with. And how is it that that we're going to really, truly tackle this ongoing problem? Yeah. And I think one of the things I appreciate about this episode, because we've we've talked in a variety of different ways about housing um, and housing relevant topics, especially as they relate to the pandemic. Right. And in this episode, I think we're really fortunate to talk with someone who understands a lot of the intricacies of the quickly changing policy kind of landscape, because sometimes kind of just keeping up with all of the things that are happening, whether that's a local ordinance or state policy changes or federal moratorium on evictions, like it's happening so quickly in this moment that I think having someone kind of talk us through what that looks like and and how that's been carried out and the, the implications of what's happening around housing policy and COVID, I think is really uh, uh, important. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated about this episode is, is that um, our guest talks a lot about that there are these existing inequities and that the pandemic has only really exacerbated these inequities and that uh, that, that they're built on fundamentally a lot of uh, different tensions and, and pre-existing conditions, if you will, mm-hmm. right? And this isn't new. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm really excited to have with us today Dr. Megan Hatch. All right, we're really excited to have with us today Megan Hatch. Megan Hatch is an associate professor of urban policy and city management in the Maxine Gooden Levin College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University. She has a PhD in public policy and public administration from George Washington University and a master's of public administration from Cornell University. Dr. Hatch's research is driven by a concern for social justice and questions of how state and local public policies are made and their impact on people. Dr. Hatch is on the board of trustees of the Heights Community Congress, the HCC, a Cleveland area fair housing organization. We're super excited to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. 
And I have a real quick question for you. Would you prefer that we call you Dr. Hatch or Megan? Megan is totally fine. Fantastic. <laughs> we're, we're with you there. Uh, <laughs> yes, please call me Ashley. <laughs> so, Megan, can you tell us, and actually, just to let everybody know, we, we are friends with Megan. So, uh, yes. <laughs> this is probably an important thing. <laughs> Full disclosure, right? Yeah. Uh, but for our listeners, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, besides what the official stuff in the bio, I grew up outside of Boston, but spent most of my adult life in DC before I came here to Northeast Ohio about seven years ago. Uh, I have two cats, which you two, which everyone who's listening might hear in the background. Hopefully they'll be quiet. Uh, two of my guiding principles in my research and in my teaching and the advocacy work I do is social justice and applying research to real life. I take the idea of academics being stuck in the ivory tower really personally, and it's something that I don't want to do and I don't want my students to do either. So it's something I really focus on. One of my big projects over the last couple of years have been taking my public policy and public administration courses and integrating a lot on social justice. So having those really uncomfortable conversations and having class debates about the way that administrative burden and administrative evil make things worse for some people or how street level bureaucrats can really impact people's lives. So that's something that I think is really important in my work and in my teaching. In terms of my advocacy, a lot of my work has been focused on different types of rental housing advocacy. Something that I think I'll get into later, hopefully, is the work that I've done with a bunch of colleagues on criminal activity nuisance ordinances and the way that those laws have impacted folks locally as well as nationally. And then right now, something that's come up a lot recently is source of income discrimination. There's new proposed legislation in Cleveland to outlaw this type of housing discrimination. Other towns are talking about it. So that's something that I've been doing a lot of work on lately. I really believe in writing blog posts and policy briefs. I was uh, fortunate enough to be a chapter co-leader of Scholar Strategy Network, the chapter here in Northeast Ohio for several years, and really trying to amplify the voices of academics and connect with the nonprofit world and with press, things like that. One of the things I love about working and living in Northeast Ohio is how strong the nonprofit and advocacy community really is. I've met and worked with so many different fantastic organizations from HCC to Legal Aid to the Fair Housing Center to the um, Health Center at UH, all these different groups and being able to work on what's going on in our community is really something that I feel very fortunate to be able to do. And some of those, you know, one meeting leads to another, leads to another, or a Twitter conversation at like 11 o'clock at night a few weeks ago led to a meeting that now I'm talking about utility security in, the, in Cleveland. So there's all these different opportunities to really get involved. And that's something that I really appreciate about living here. I love that. I have a real quick follow-up. Um, for our listeners, can you define administrative burden and street-level bureaucrat? I won't make you define administrative evil. I think that's that's not fair, but. <laughs> yeah, that one's a, a tough one. I think you might know something about that one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so administrative burden, kind of in a non-jargony 
uh, phrase is those things that make it a little bit harder to get services. So those can be, let's say we think of like cash assistance. So there's psychological burdens associated with the stigma of having assistance, but there's also compliance burdens of all the paperwork that you have to fill out and that that paperwork has to be renewed every year, however many times it is. And you've got to make sure you have this form from, you know, your kid's school and this form from your last job and make sure your address matches up. And so all these things make it harder to get assistance. We find that if there's services that have a lot of those burdens, that a lot of paperwork, a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, that it's harder for folks to get the assistance that they need. And I think the other thing you also need to find were street-level bureaucrats. Those are administrators who are on the front lines. Those are the people that folks come in contact with. And it can be anyone from teachers and police officers to the person at the what do we call it in Ohio? BMV, the Bureau of oh, Motor Vehicles right. or the RMV or the DMV, depending on where you live, but where you go and get your license. Like those people you talk to are also street level bureaucrats or the people who work, you know, that you call up if you need to, you have a question about your mis- municipal tax bill, something like that. All those people who interact with the public are street level bureaucrats. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, so my question for you uh, as a follow-up, I, if, in many ways, it piggybacks on that uh, quite quite well, is that you do a lot of work around issues uh, that have social justice implications and around policies that disproportionately affect vulnerable populations. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of these research areas uh, that you started alluding to uh, at the beginning um, and, and tell us a little bit more about them? Sure. So what I really started thinking about in terms of vulnerable populations and social justice and public policy was rental housing. Renters are about a third of Americans. They tend to have lower incomes than homeowners. They tend to be more likely to be racial minorities, maybe younger than homeowners. And I really started out my academic career wondering, well, what about them? What are the policies and the protections that they have? When I was doing my PhD, it was post-housing bubble, but people were still thinking about it a lot. And I was really interested in what happens to renters when their landlords foreclose. When the renters don't know that you know they're paying their rent and all of a sudden the landlord says, I foreclosed, you need to get out of the house. Uh, and so I was thinking about that, which led to a real interest in understanding landlord-tenant policies and how those policies vary across cities and across states and how much protection renters have. So in some places, landlords can only raise the rent by X percent every lease term. And others, there's nothing that would stop your landlord from raising your rent in your next lease by 50, 60%. And some places... The procedures for an eviction mean that you could be evicted within, you know, 30 days or something like that. And where I lived in D.C., you the whole process could take way, way longer, could take the I don't know if this is actually empirically proven, but the anecdotally people would say, oh, it's going to take a year or more to evict, evict someone. So there's this huge variation in landlord tenant policies. So as I thought more about those, a couple of them really stuck with me as things I wanted to research more. So the first of them is source of income discrimination. 
This is essentially, if you've ever looked at Craigslist or something like that, and you saw no Section 8 or no vouchers, that source of income discrimination. That's saying, I will not rent or will not continue to rent to someone because of how they get their lawful income, usually vouchers. But this could also include military benefits or disability benefits, something like that. So some states prohibit this starting in about the early 2000s. Ohio is not one of them. Uh, some counties do, some cities. There's, I think, five cities in Cuyahoga County that uh, prohibit this type of discrimination. So, and as I, I alluded to or mentioned earlier, Cleveland is thinking about passing a source of income anti-discrimination policy. So there's definitely this um, desire to, to think about these policies. And I argue they're really important because it source of income discrimination limits where people who have vouchers can live. And it makes it harder for them to get a voucher or, or to use their voucher. And when you have a voucher, you only have so much time. So you have to find a place to live. And what the research finds is that, you know, as it starts getting closer to that deadline of you having to use it, people are willing to take units that maybe they don't like as much or aren't in the neighborhood they would prefer or the housing quality isn't as good. So source of income discrimination can lead to lower quality housing as well as a concentration of poverty. The idea behind these laws is that allow people and to, to move where they want to go and to, you know, within the limits of, of um, how much the voucher will pay for and stuff like that, there, it allows for a broader uh, distribution and choice for, for voucher holders. So I'd say that's one landlord-tenant policy that I really became interested in. Another one is criminal activity nuisance ordinances. This is generally a local law. We call them canos because criminal activity nuisance ordinances is a lot to say. Essentially, what these are is they say, if the police or emergency services come to a property too many times within a certain time period, usually like two or three times within a year, that property is considered a nuisance. And you'll get the property owner, this is important, the owner gets a letter saying this is a nuisance. If the emergency services are called again, there's going to be consequences. And consequences can be a fine. It can be something much more severe, but usually it's a fine. What research shows is that what happens is landlords get this initial notification and they evict their tenants. And they're just, they don't want to deal with it. Sometimes some cities even encourage landlords to evict their tenants. But these laws are pretty vague. And what qualifies a lot of Laws will say if there's any violation of the city code, and, and that can mean a lot of things. So we found uh, my colleagues at Cleveland State uh, and at the ACLU, we've done some research into these local ones, and you'll find stories of things that clearly are not criminal activity or a misuse of uh, police, which is what the, the concern was, is a misuse in police uh, resources. It's, you know, it could be things like two siblings are fighting and it leads to uh, the one that I think is the most heartbreaking that I saw was two siblings were fighting over a can of soda. Somehow they got into a fight. There was hair pulling. A third sibling got hit and was bleeding or something like that. So they had to call emergency services. And because that was the number of calls within the time period, that led to a nuisance notification. 
the thing that we really, my colleagues and especially um, students at Cleveland State really this is how I got interested. It was a student project. They went out and they realized this was happening a lot in cases of domestic violence. And as I said, it's a property-based thing. So it doesn't even matter if the perpetrator lived there or not. So what we were finding is that sometimes one per- party would come in, would there'd be an abuse situation, and the person who would get the nuisance notification and who would be evicted was the survivor of the domestic violence. And even in cases sometimes where the police came and the perpetrator was arrested and maybe the survivor had to go to the hospital, something like that, they were still getting nuisance notifications. And the students said, this isn't right. This isn't the way that we help people who are facing these sorts of situations. That should not trigger a nuisance notification. So the students did incredible advocacy on this, got a bunch of these let these laws, local laws change. Uh, the ACLU has been really involved in this, not only locally, but also um, Sandra Park at ACLU has been litigating this across the country, trying to make the case that these laws in general are bad, but especially when they're used against survivors of domestic violence. Yeah, I, I'm really curious because so one of your main areas of focus really right, deals with housing and rental housing and this relationship between tenant and landlord. Can you share for us some of the issues that are kind of unique to those who are renting property that those who own a home, they don't really have to uh, deal with it or, or, or they may not even have this experience whatsoever? People who rent and own are generally different. Of course, there are people who could afford to own that don't want to for whatever reason. But a lot of people who rent can't afford or aren't at the position in their life of the stability of home ownership. So it creates renters are often more financially precarious than homeowners. And the rental relationship is to get a little economisty on you is about power and information asymmetry that the landlord has something that they want to sell or to rent to a renter. So there's already a power dynamic of the person who has something, the person who's asking for those services. And there's an information dynamic. So the sure, a landlord doesn't know what type of renter someone's going to be. But a renter doesn't know what type of, type of landlord they're going to be. They don't know you know, is that going to be a landlord that if something goes wrong, they're going to fix right away? Or is it going to be really hard to get a hold of the landlord? If you need an extra day or two for rent, is that going to be the type of landlord who's okay with that or who's going to immediately start filing eviction claims? You also don't know anything about the property and you might not be able to do anything about it. So uh, it's a pretty cold day here in Northeast Ohio. You, If you rented your house in July, you might have no idea that your your house or your apartment is very, very drafty. And you might not know how much your utility bill, bills are going to be. And that can be, especially for someone who has a lower income, that can really, you know, that can be an unexpected, you have a couple hundred dollar utility bill. So you have all these things, but you can't necessarily change them depending on the terms of your lease. You're really dependent on someone else. And you don't have you know, if you own a house, you can go paint your bedroom tomorrow and you can add in an addition or you can put whatever sign you want in your window. But those are things that renters might not necessarily be able to do. They have a lot less control over all these things. 
And I would also imagine that there's a, a bit of a supply and demand issue where if you are a renter, uh, I mean, as you said earlier, you could have this voucher that you have to use and there's just no supply of houses that, that you can rent. Whereas if you're a homeowner, if there's no demand, I mean, to be honest, you can always sell that house, right? <laughs> right. And especially if you need to rent a home in a certain area now, that can be difficult. It's going to depend on your local rental market and that's going to vary a lot. Um, and kind of the cyclical nature of rental markets. Some cities are very much September 1st because everyone is a college town. Uh, here in Cleveland, we're pretty tied to the medical cycle. So a lot of rental units come up around June, July when the medical residencies start. And so if you're trying to get an apartment in December, there's going to be a lot less. And if you, um, if there's a renter who has a voucher or has an eviction on their record or something like that, it limits even more what landlord is willing to accept them. So that can make it even harder to find a unit. Then we find renters in those positions making trade-offs between availability and price or price and housing quality, things like that, just because they need a unit quickly. So that's even more limiting in your choices. So we're recording this and we're almost a year into the pandemic. Um, so as we're having this conversation, I can only imagine that thinking about housing is even more complicated by the pandemic in terms of the impact on the economy, on people's income levels, impact on all sorts of things in terms of being able to see uh, properties, for example. So my, my question to you is that, so issues related to housing, especially concerning rental housing, have been a main issue as people are struggling to pay rent during the crisis. Can you explain some of the policies that uh, different governments, whether it's the federal government, uh, states, or kind of locales, um, have implemented to address some of the, the issues that people are facing in terms of housing during the pandemic? Yeah, I'll start by saying I share this big concern about housing in the pandemic, and obviously I'm not the only one. Lots of people do. A lot of the basic public health policies are based on the fact that you have a safe and healthy and stable place to live. You can't shelter in place. You can't work from home. Your kids can't virtually lo learn if you do not have that home. So it's this added stress of what happens if someone lost their job and can't afford their rent or can't afford paying their mortgage. So that's something that not only researchers like me and advocates, but I think policymakers are also aware of this. So the, the first thing we saw were some eviction moratoriums. Some of those happened because the courts closed down. Some were more official eviction moratoriums, and that was very much piecemeal for the early part of the pandemic until the CDC, the Center for Disease Controls, had a nationwide moratorium. Actually, there was another one before then on certain types of properties. The um, Freddie and Fannie subsidized, those types of properties had some moratoriums. But the broader one was the CDC one. That one's written pretty carefully. It's written in an interesting way because it, it situates this as a public health concern instead of a housing concern, which of course it is, but it acknowledges that these things are so intertwined. But it's eviction moratorium for non-payment of rent. So their evictions can still happen if there's other reasons for it. 
And there's some questions of, is it possible to, you know, could it be two things and one is used as the reason? So we had that. It's been extended a couple times. I think now it's going until like the end of March or something like that. Um, and, and it has worked to an extent. So the eviction lab at Princeton University has kept a lot of data on evictions generally starting in the, in 2000 to 2016. And then more recently, uh, having to do with COVID and the pandemic. So I went and I looked at their Cleveland uh, data just to give a little snapshot. There were almost no evictions in April and May, and that's when the courts were closed and there was the local moratorium. Soon as that lifted, we saw this spike in, in evictions, which is what we'd expect. And then it's actually been more or less steady since the CDC eviction moratorium. We're still seeing eviction filings. And I can explain the difference between filings and judgment in a second. Uh, for example, the third week in January, there were still 96 eviction filings in Cleveland. So we're not at zero, but there are still... It's lower than average, and it has been lower than average throughout the pandemic. So we're seeing fewer evictions uh, or eviction filings as well since the pandemic. So the filings and judgments, a little thing to understand. A filing is when they go and put in the paperwork in the courts. Uh, work, incredible work by Eva Rosen and Phil Garboden have looked at what they call serial filers. So these are landlords who will every single month file an eviction claim against their tenants. And often it doesn't lead anywhere. Like they just stop it there. And that's a good way of having a legal history of these eviction filings and as a way of controlling their tenants. So they can keep saying this. And then when finally they decide, I want to get rid of this tenant, they have this history of filings. They can say, look, they never pay the rent on time. I have this evidence. And then they can get rid of the tenant. So if moratoriums don't stop filings, this could still be happening and you could still have that history. The judgments are when it actually gets to the end of the court system, which doesn't happen as much as the other, like that's less likely to happen. There's all these different stop points where the, either the tenant leaves or there's a mediation or the landlord decides not to continue it or whatever it is. But the judgments are then when the sheriff or whoever it was would come and forcibly remove you from the house. So we're still seeing those filings. Some places there's no filing. Some there, there are, it depends on how the policies are implemented. So that's sort of the big policy that we're seeing right now. There's also smaller things that are going on in terms of rental assistance or sticking with rental for now. There's rental assistance programs to help with some of that back rent. And that's going to be something that is going to be really important when the moratoriums end. Because a moratorium right now means you're not getting kicked out of your house, but your rent is still accruing. And so if you have, you know, let's just say your rent is $500 a month and you don't pay, you can't pay your rent for 10 months during the pandemic. Well, now you have $5,000. If you couldn't come up with, if you lost your job and you're struggling financially and you didn't have $500 for your rent, where's that $5,000 going to come from? So there's a big concern that whenever the moratoriums are done, there's going to be all these eviction filings and all this accrued rent that people can't pay. So different nonprofits and cities, the city of Cleveland and the county have done a little bit of this, are trying to figure out a way to 
pay that back rent now and to help folks who need that help to so that they're not accruing more and more debt. So, I mean, it sounds like these eviction moratoriums aren't enough of a policy intervention to deal with the widespread problem. I mean, what else can be done? It seems absurd to me that this should have to be done on a city level, because I can't imagine that it's just centralized, right, in big cities. So what else can be done at either a state or federal level? And should we be focusing more on this, considering that it's probably really vulnerable populations that are more differentially impacted by this? I would argue, yes, we need to be paying a lot more attention to this at the state and frankly, the federal level is probably the best way to go about doing this. The moratoriums aren't enough, but they're a really good start. Rental assistance, some sort of landlord assistance, recognizing that landlords still have to pay their their mortgage and they still have expenses. And so helping landlords as well is really important. So some sort of policy, it's not going to be inexpensive, but it's really important thinking about how we can help those folks uh, with the accrued rent. And anytime you're talking about not being able to pay rent, the other side of this is, well, make sure people have income. So (laughs) that's the other part of this is we can't think about housing just as housing. We also need to think about it as income, whether that's the minimum wage, extending unemployment insurance, these proposals for assistance for children, any of these things, we need to make sure that folks have money as well. And that's going to be an important part of addressing these issues. Absolutely. So one of the other areas that your research um, kind of covers is uh, uh, state preemption. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about these state preemption laws. And if you can talk us through a little bit how state preemption is impacting kind of housing during the pandemic as well. And and maybe I'll just ask if you can define state preemption first. (laughs) I got, I'm going to throw it to you (laughs) Uh, to to, to, to kind of demystify these, these terms that we use. Sure. This is something uh, my co-authors, Chris Goodman and Bruce McDonald, and I have been thinking about a lot lately because there's not a super clear definition. So the way that we've been thinking about preemption is, states coercively replacing local priorities with their own priorities in kind of the more uh, folksy way of saying it. It's, I think of it as when states tell cities, nope, you can't do that. Not going to allow you to do that. You can't regulate that. So we can see it from anything historically from tobacco regulation and gun regulation to fracking to rent control, all these different types of preemptions. Generally, this happens through the legislative process, sometimes through the judicial process. And then what was really unique about COVID is that we saw it through the executive branch, which is something that we generally don't think of preemption coming through. So I'll talk about that in a second. But there's two main types of preemptions, what we call floor or ceiling. So a ceiling would say this is the maximum amount of regulation anyone can do. Cities, you can't regulate more than this. A floor would be, this is the basic. You all can go above and beyond this. You can regulate it. You can legislate more, but you can't do less than this. So what we saw during COVID was that governors use their emergency powers to preempt their cities through executive orders. We saw a bunch of states do this. Uh, 
Chris, Bruce, and I have a paper that's coming out soon about this, or I think it's online first. Uh, I'll give you that link so you can put it in the show notes, um, that we saw a lot of variation in what, what states did as states were trying to figure out how to address this crisis, something that they weren't prepared for or weren't as prepared as maybe they would like to be. How do we address the public health concerns so we saw a lot of preemptions. Some were those floor, here's the minimum, you can do more. Some were the ceiling, you can't do any more than this. So it depended on the state or the, a lot of it was partisan, but not necessarily partisan. Some states had a little bit of both. So a good example of this is what happened in Georgia. So there was, this is one of the cases that people might have heard a lot about. So Georgia executive orders had some, a little bit of some ceiling preemptions in them. Then Atlanta's mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, signed an executive order requiring masks on July 8th. We need to mask some PPE. Governor Kemp preempted this on July 15th, saying uh, that cities essentially can't require face coverings, masks, PPE, face shields, anything like that, that are more restrictive than what the state had said. So he preempted what had gone on in Atlanta. She didn't back down. The mayor of Atlanta didn't back down. It led to a lawsuit. There was a lot of back and forth. The lawsuit was finally dropped in August. But from a urban perspective and also thinking about race and gender, like there's so much that is tied into the Georgia Example. So if you have cities, if you have places that have more people with low incomes and racial minorities, we know those are the populations that are particularly vulnerable to COVID. And if states are saying, cities, you can't do these kind of things, then cities aren't able to address what they need to address. They can't respond to their constituents' needs because the state says, well, you can't do anything or you can't do more. So that, that's for a ceiling. For a floor, it's the opposite. The cities can do more. But it really limits what cities can do and how can they can respond to their constituents. So we've seen that, uh, Georgia being an extreme example, but we saw it in other states as well, limiting what cities can do to respond. So I guess it seems like there are these, I mean, you know, federal, state, city ordinances and policies that are being implemented that are kind of, uh, coming at it from one side or the other. And I'm wondering, in your view, is this creating more conflict and tension before between tenants and landlords and kind of exacerbating tensions that are already existing uh, during, especially during this time when we're still stuck in a now almost one year long <laughs> pandemic? I think, I don't want to go too doom and gloom. I think there's definitely a lot of tensions and a lot of difficult relationships between landlords and tenants. But I also want to acknowledge we've seen some really incredible stories of folks helping each other out, whether it's a community, especially early in the pandemic, we'd hear all these news stories about landlords who would just say, you know, you don't have to pay your rent this month. A lot of landlords have really been working with their tenants to take partial payment or to allow the payment to be a couple weeks late. So there's a lot of good things have been coming out of it. But we're still seeing all the things that I talked about of rent accruing and concerns about what happens if people are evicted or if they're evicted in the future. And some of the consequences, I think, are going to be pretty hidden. So we can measure evictions, but it's going to be harder to measure non-renewal of leases. 
And it's going to be hard to know how this might change landlord behavior about who they rent to in the future. So those sort of things, it's going to be really difficult to figure out what's actually going on and how those relationships have changed. Perhaps landlords might actually be more likely to take vouchers afterwards because they know that voucher payments come from the government too, or they come from public housing authorities. So they know that there's money that's always going to be there. So you might actually, I don't know, I don't think the evidence is there yet, but we could actually see an increase in the acceptance of vouchers, which then uh, hopefully will put some pressure on policymakers to provide more vouchers because voucher waiting lists are generally closed and have been closed for a really long time. So maybe there'll be some pressure to to have more vouchers. We're not quite sure how that's going to work, but this is something consequences of, I think we're going to see for quite a long time after things go back to our new normal, whatever that is. Yeah. And I have a follow-up and I fully appreciate that you weren't prepared for this. So maybe the answer is no, but can you think of any places where they are bringing tenants and landlords together to try to come up with a solution that maybe works best for both groups instead of having be this adversarial type of relationship, trying to promote a community based relationship that, that, uh, comes to some sort of uh, uh, agreement or uh, in, uh, or you know implementation of a policy that can benefit both sides. I can't think of a specific city to point you to, but there have been nonprofits and community organizing groups that have really started those conversations and tried to get whether it's a tenants union or a nonprofit to talk about these issues and to work with landlords. So I think you're seeing more of that grassroots, smaller organizing sort of relationships and, and relationship building. I think legal aid across the country and fair housing organizations have a large role to play in this, as well as the housing authorities and those grassroots organizations as well. I have a just a final question. So our listeners know that this is always the last question. Do you have any you know, final words of wisdom. You've shared so much knowledge with us um, about policies from, you know, the local ordinance level to kind of uh, implications from a federal policy level. But is there anything else you want to make sure our listeners kind of take away from this conversation? Any words of wisdom? I don't know if it's wisdom, but uh, thinking about this podcast and what it represents, I really want to encourage folks to get involved in what they care about. I am inspired all the time by the work that my students do in their limited free time and going out and advocating and working on op-eds and volunteering. And if they can, you know, people who can afford it to, to give their money or their time or their effort or their passion, I think that makes such a huge difference. And especially in a community in North, Northeast Ohio where there's opportunities, I think that Getting involved in that one or two things that you care about can make such a big difference. And I definitely encourage people to do that. And even if it's just writing a letter to your elected officials, that's great too. Whatever you can do to help, I think is fantastic. And I encourage people to do that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Megan. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and as always, my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Goldnock Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about governing during pandemics.